0: Good evening. Um, thank you for coming uh, this evening. First, my my heartfelt thanks to Professor Abbas Mirani uh, for that incredibly generous introduction. I'm, I'm humble and uh, very grateful, for, particularly uh, to be speaking here uh, before this you know, world-renowned. Um, Program in Iranian Studies, uh, which is so so very distinguished. Uh, Professor Mirani has done extraordinary work to build it over the years and build its renown you know, really across the world. Um, so it's uh, I'm, I'm, particularly as a scholar of Anglophone poetry and poetics, um, um, I feel a little bit like a fish out of the water here. Uh, but I so I, I hope for that reason that uh, you, Professor Mirani, and uh, the rest of you who are in Iranian studies will um, forgive the inadequacies of a, of a newcomer to uh, this area. Uh, in any case, it's wonderful to be back at Stanford, and uh, I want to also thank the English department, creative writing, and Jewish studies uh, for uh, co-sponsoring, and it's really great to see Long cherished friends here and to be meeting and, and making new friends as well during this trip. I start with a picture of what was, before last year's election, uh, the world's most famous wall, though I hope to show uh, that walls are not always what they seem. Uh, this talk's gonna be in three parts of um, unequal length, so don't get worried, too worried, uh, uh, you know, across the hour or so, and the first looks at the Persian influences on modern Irish poet that have past, largely unrecognized, Um, a um, bridge taken for a wall. The second looks at a Persian poet whose accessibility in English has perhaps been overestimated. A wall taken for a bridge. And the third attempts a synthesis in another Persian poet who can help us think, I think, about the arts as both bridge and wall. And in my conclusion I'm gonna offer uh, a few reflections, briefly, on the place of lyric poetry in world literature. So for this first section, I've been writing uh, across my career about the <coughs> preeminent Irish poet W. B. E. Yeats, um, but it wasn't until my uh, Iranian-born father, um, who was very kindly um, spoken about, just now, by Professor Mirani, uh, he was dying last fall, and the tide of anti-Iranian uh, Anti Muslim xenophobia was rising, that I woke to a previously undetected Persian undercurrent that flows into Yates's work. Indeed, I think as we try to transnationalize our cultural paradigms of the humanities and my uh, field, explore more fully modernism's engagement with Asian, African, Pacific Islander, and other cultures, Iran's been left uh, almost entirely out of the picture, as it has been. Largely out of world literary studies as well. Critics have written about Yeats's other Asian interests, um, to take my uh, permanent example here, which is Japanese um, and in Indian culture, including collaborations with uh, figures like Mohini Chatterjee, Tagore, Sri Purugitswami, uh, Yoni Noguchi, Junzo Sato, and others, uh, but not the Persianist Yeats. I want to confront straight away a reason why this idea might seem improbable. Those of you who know Yeats might be frowning, uh, thinking, how could really say this? Namely, his lauding the Greek defeat of the uh, Persians in the second stanza of his great late poem called The Statues, um, uh, by virtue of superiority of artists like Phidias. Um, he says, no greater than. Uh, for the men that with a mallet or a chisel modeled these calculations that look like casual flesh put down all Asiatic vague immensities. Um, So he's talking about this defeat uh, of the Persian armies at Salamis and basically it's uh, Greek form that um, helps to defeat the um, Asiatic uh, many-headed foam at Salamis as he calls it here. Um, so, I guess you could make an argument to the dean for the value of the humanities uh, on the basis of this. You know, look, we can defeat armies, but obviously, uh, it's somewhat. Um, it's someone whose parentage is mostly Iranian, Muslim on one side, Zoroastrian on the other. Um, and uh, here to put up here a picture of my great grandfather Abolhassan Khosrow Shahrokh, the representative. Um, for Zoroastrians in Parliament. Um, so, if you're from that background, you might feel dismayed by a stanza like the Cypades that I started off with, since it updates the notion that um, my ancestors were the original barbarians. Uh, their unintelligible speech, sounding to the at least to the ancient Greeks, like an echoic and nonsensical babble marked them as the uncivilized other, especially uh, after the Greco-Persian wars. I always wonder, what were they actually saying? Baradar, Nuneh <laughs> you know, what, was, what was it that they heard? Anyway, um, a near, a, a, a nearly exact contemporary of Yeats, uh, about Kihusro, um, it's just remarkable. Uh, this one year difference, oh, I don't, you can't see the date there, um, fix that. There we go. Um, so you can see they're, they're almost exact uh, contemporaries. Um, he had just recently built uh, the Mausoleum for Ferdowsi, Sea, um, uh, author of Iran's uh, great epic poem, Shahnameh, um at the time when Yeats was disparaging Persian formlessness. Um, if, like uh, me, as a 15-year-old uh, kid you stood at at uh, Iran's ancient capital, Persepolis, and we're awed by the sculptural precision and formal patterning still visible there after two and a half millennia, let alone the intricate um, uh, metal work uh, many of us have seen in places like uh, the British Museum, Eats' its contrast between the Greek cult- sculptural precision and a Persia of Asiatic vague immensity is, again, may seem problematic. Um, the Iranians, of course, have been receiving bad press in the West ever since the ancient Greeks were victors' history, not long after the battle at Salamis, To understand this broad cultural um, put-down, emphasized there by the enjambment of the third line, the almost inevitable framework, I suppose, is um, Edward Said's Orientalism. As Said writes, Orientalism produces and reinforces a series of oppositions by which the West defines itself Um, And orientals, of course, are always symmetrical to, he says, and yet diametrically inferior to a European equivalent. Yeats dichotomizes in his uh, work the heroic individualized West as against the Asian, formless, many-headed East. So having begun with this hardest case, though, I want to show that it's relatively atypical of Yeats and inconsistent with many of his poems. Yeats' engagements with Persian culture can help us to see that while the Orientalist model remains valuable, it's possible, as I've argued elsewhere for Eliot Pound and other modernists, for Orientalists also to be anti Orientalists. And if so, perhaps we can continue to learn about intercultural exchange from these poets' intermittent uh, dialogue with Asian cultures, even that of the original barbarians. So, why is Yeats open to such dialogue? I think the early inspiration of Mohini Chatterjee, we saw earlier, the transnational mysticism of theosophy, uh, the shared sense of the Irish as being on the receiving end of empire, um, all of these and other factors likely played a part. In comments across his career, uh, which I put up here, needs uh, frequently suggests A, that Ireland and Asia have a common ancestry, B, that East and West have influenced one another over thousands of years, and see whether they came about through shared ancestry or influences. The resemblances between Ireland and Asia are profound. Even the statues of uh, that poem that I began with complicates its east-west binaries with contrary views. It's crams of the third stands up hundreds of years of art history in which east and west crossing is even fuse. As the Greek Empire extended into West and South Asia, Hellenistic sculptural forms were indigenized in Greco Buddhist sculptures, he uh, draws our attention to here, that are both idealist and realist as in the Gandharan style. It champions, the Buddhists, embrace the fundamental reality of emptiness. The um, middle uh, of this uh, uh, middle stanza here, uh, middle of the stanza, empty eyeballs, new. That knowledge increases on reality; that mirror on mirror mirrored is all the show. Like the meditating Hindu ascetics on Mount Meru, and another poem, the enlightened one strips away all illusion and sees into what Yeats calls the desolation of reality. Elsewhere, Yeats sees a Greco-Persian confluence in the Persianized work of Kalimachus, great. Greek sculptor celebrated in the middle stanza of, of a poem uh, that straddles east and west, Lapis Lazuli. So, if the Persians were seen as the enemies of form in the statues, Bates nevertheless credits them in his long systematic work, A Vision, with being the creators of forms that are central to his idealized Byzantium. He's especially attracted to what he calls. Um, Uh, to that decoration that seems to undermine our self-control, and is it seems of Persian origin, and has for its appropriate symbol a vine whose tendrils climb everywhere and display among their leaves all those strange images of bird and beast, those forms that represent no creature eye has ever seen, yet are begotten one upon another, uh, upon the other, as if they were themselves living creatures. Uh, Hard not to hear in this passage's interest in self-replicating, non mimetic forms. Forms begotten one upon the other. A precursor for the lines in Marietta's most famous poems, Byzantium, uh, about self-generative uh, forms. Flames begotten of flame. Gloriously self-sufficient and independent of the natural world. The multiply and ecstatically echoic diction and sounds in the poem Byzantium. Evoke a patterning that surpasses nature. Just as modern artists like Picasso, um, this painting, Kandinsky, spent um, a year in Tunisia, 1904 or five. Matisse, the same period, um, this is a picture I took from the uh, recent exhibit uh, about his interest in Morocco, Algeria, and uh, Andalusia, were influenced by abstracted, non Western forms. Yeats's intricately patterned poems build on the idea of the non-representational, self-replicating Persian forms embedded in Byzantine art. Increasingly we're coming to understand modernist styles not as merely appropriating, but as being constituted by such non-Western forms. And I think an important and unappreciated part of that story is the, the crucial um, ingredient of Persian, Persian art and architecture. In keeping with the work of the Austrian art historian who repeatedly cites Josef Tchaikovsky, Yeats sees the non-representational lines, patterns, and creatures in Byzantine mosaics to be of Persian origin, such as those um, that profoundly affected Yeats on his travels to Ravenna in 1907 and Sicily in 1925. Although his uh, vision of Byzantium as a site of blending of East and West is frequently acknowledged, Yes, f- less fully embraced is the idea of specifically Iranian influence. Indeed, at least one critic is exasperated by the idea of grousing. It is too, too dependent on Strzegovsky's obsession with the supposed Persian origin of Byzantine art. Strzegovsky knew, uh, of course, that to make a claim for Iranian and Mesopotamian influences on the Byzantine Empire was sure to meet, as he says here, uh, with hostility and prejudice. But he pointed Italian mosaics to what he thought was an older influence, which, in my opinion, must be connected with Iran and more particularly with Mazdian ideas. Although Stragovsky's work is eccentrically morphological and his later politics are deplorable, he helped push our history in a global direction, as uh, historian Suzanne uh, Marchon has recently argued. Challenge, uh, she says, Eurocentrism and attack the classicizing elitism the art historical establishment, which failed to give the as she says, sufficient credit for its independent inventions. Right, everything's always been class- uh, traced back to the classical Roman and Greek heritage. It also acknowledges the Iranian conceptual basis that Shkofsky identifies with semi-abstract forms, suggesting of his copy of an old Persian carpet that it's winding, not that carpet, like that, uh, that, its winding and wandering line had once that philosophical meaning which has made it very interesting to Yosef Shakovsky and was part of the religion of Zoroaster. In view, pre Islamic Iran affords Byzantine art what he calls anti representational forms rooted in the Zoroastrian idea, particularly of Farinam, or glory, the propulsive force of life associated with the creator god Ahura Mazda. Farina, he says, is the power that makes running waters gush from springs, and even governs the, course, uh, the courses of sun, moon, and stars. What form specifically does this Iranian life force take in art? A well, miraculous bird is prominent among Iran's natural beasts. The bird Farenav, or Faregna, writes <laughs> Shugovsky, is the vehicle of Farina glory. The glory flew forth in the likeness of a bird, he quotes from the star Supernatural fowl resembles other magically running birds, such as Simor and Simor. Just as Yeats conceives the continuous vine as Persian, he would have known from Strugovsky that a bird made by Grecian goldsmiths in 6th century Byzantium to keep the drowsy emperor awake, as he says in Salem to Byzantium, may have borne Iranian traces. So too, the emphatically non-naturalistic 10th century bird of uh, uh, Byzantium, uh, these are some pictures I took in a museum in Berlin, uh, here is uh, that stanza from Byzantium, recalls the Persian prototype that Stragovsky emphasizes, miracle bird or golden handiwork, that may scorn aloud in glory of changeless metal, common bird or petal, and all complexities of mire or blood. Describing Italian mosaics, such as those use. you saw in Ravenna and Sicily, Strabovsky's attributes the general scheme to Iranian influences. Um, and here, I'm sorry, I'm going to take you. It's almost going to be like um, my excuse to do what art historians always do: turn off, you know the lights down and show sure you for their travels. Well, anyway, I spent some time in uh, Ravenna, uh, ended, so I, I get to do that a little bit here. Um, uh, he talks about. I mean, uh, uh, motifs in the form of a vase between, two, uh, between birds, or whole landscapes with sheep or stags, by the side of a shepherd and flanked by palms, or as the tomb of uh, Galakasidia, Gala a cross with a starry background, features that, you know, says, Strzokowski seem to indicate an eastern origin, and the supposition is confirmed by the decoration of adjacent barrel walls and apses, With fine scrolls, acanthus scrolls, and figures of stags at water springs, and colors suggested by birds' plumage. Similarly, the Church of San Vitale also has um, symbols um, in the roofs, mosaics, converging tree designs forming a circle, intermediate spaces being filled by continuous scrolls, enclosing a large number of birds and animals. for Strabovsky, other non-representational elements, such as the interlaced geometric patterns and scroll work and capitals, are distinctly Iranian. So um, you know, to specify, I think this Persian strand in Byzantium is to give the generality of the idea of Byzantium as offering an east-west fusion more precise in the cultural force. So although I've been emphasizing uh, the pre-Islamic, Zoroastrian elements of Persian culture, believed to be manifest in Byzantine art, Persian culture was also a central influence, of course, on Arab Muslim culture, particularly uh, during what is often called, or I guess as this term is not Disputed the golden age of Islam. Except for the Byzantium poems, the place name Byzantium appears in only one other of Yeats's poems, The Gift of Harun al-Rashid. Despite the popular image of Yeats's poetry, it's focused almost exclusively on Ireland, one of the longest poems he wrote in maturity reimagines the intellectual learning and cultural splendor under this Abbasid caliph. Um, uh, as, a, as a context within which to dramatize the beginnings of his marriage. It's a dramatic monologue which unfolds an epistolary poem, which includes a dialogue poem, frames within frames, genres within genres that recall the layering of the Persian queen Shahzad's recitations in the poem's prototype, A Thousand Million Nights. The amalgam of Middle Eastern and South Asian narratives that Yeats said most moved him after Shakespeare. His semi-historical narrative refers to intercultural exchange between Baghdad and Byzantium as the doctor and translator Gustav and Luca, who historically actually came a little bit later, but we'll forget that anachronism here, instructs an unnamed messenger to carry this letter uh, past the caliph's dark banners, inscribed with calligraphy, past Sappho to pause at the treatise of Parmenides and hide it there for caliphs to world's end. Must keep that perfect. That keep her song so great its fame. Early Greek works that are later known only in fragments, of course, are still whole in the Caliph's library. In a note originally accompanying the poem, Beattes defends his taking poetical license, as he calls it, to imagine that this great philosophical work of which we possess only fragments um, may have found its way into an Arab library of the eighth century. Islamic learning was, of course, was the crucial to the preservation of ancient Greek texts, an Eastern detour that uh, leads foreground, but sometimes forgotten, narratives of the seemingly unbroken line of transmission of the Western heritage. What at least used to be called, again, the golden age of Islam, so the development of institutions of scientific, medical, philosophical, cultural learning, such as the House of the Wisdom, founded by God by Harun al-Rashid, which brought together Muslim, Christian, and Jewish scholars, both the poem and his note to it, each refers to the historical execution of the Caliph's Zir, Jafar, in 803, saying he had been the head of the family of Baransi, an important family of advisors of Persian Buddhist origin in the Caliph's court. Add to this cross-cultural mix um, Luca's reference to the Great Hammad Rashid, born and raised in Iran, near Tehran, as sometimes occupied with Persian embassy or Grecian war. And in the poem's first printing, the letter's address C, later fictionalized as um, meaning the rabbi, was um, angel in Persian, the equivalent of Saint Angelo. And the poem's narrator is a Christian, or as he puts it, someone who has accepted the Byzantine faith. Arab, Persian, Greek, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Byzantine, this is a world of manifold cross cultural intersections. It conveys something of the spirit of the medieval Muslim world in which peoples of different faiths, working across different languages, collected and advanced world thought and culture in what seems, you know, at a time when much of Europe, anyway, seemed a relative backwater. Post colonial scholars such as Robert J.C. Young have rightly conceptualized medieval Cordoba as such a transnational and transcultural site under Islam. But obviously uh, Baghdad came several centuries earlier, of course. Like Byzantium Cordoba, Yates' Baghdad exemplifies an east-west cosmopolitanism that's far from being, from an order presumed in Edward Said's words, backward, degenerate, uncivilized, and retarded. As in Byzantium and even in Greece, Sees Wilhelm al Rashid's caliphate, a dialogue of civilizations, even as his own poem enacts it. Two of his other poems are written in the voice have of specific biblical figures Solomon and Sheba and Solomon and the Witch. Reimagining himself as the Arab Solomon, a prophet who can speak with animals and control jinns and the wind. He gives a philosophical disquisition on the painful difference between one's imagined image and the real image of the beloved, and on the extraordinary blessing of unifying these two images when choice merges with chance. Such poems attribute robust intellectual capacities to the Muslim Middle East. Moreover, far from portraying Arab femininity as passive and veiled, the poem ends with an assertion of female sexual agency, Sheba Sheba crying out, O Solomon! Let us try again. Although although even these poems betray some of the same Orientalism I began with, the sense of costuming, historical mistakes, and so forth, I hope I've assembled enough countervailing evidence that Yeats isn't only an Orientalist. Instead, he recalls the exception to Orientalism that Said carves out, albeit all all too briefly, uh, for two French writers, Navarre and Flaubert. His work is complicit in Orientalism, he says. It remains independent from it in its idiosyncrasies and unresolved tensions. Although Said narrowly restricts his frame of exception to these two writers, it should be extended I think, with other figures like Eliot, Pound, Matisse, convinced and engaged. A poet who, like Said's Frenchman, engages Persian and Arab culture and art through eccentrically personal prism without seeking Orientalist domination or doctrine. Whereas we might have thought of Yeats's poetry uh, again as an Orientalist, all harshly closes off the Middle East in degrading stereotypes. We can see it at least, as, uh, in part, as an anti-Orientalist bridge, an important, if largely um, unrec- unrecognized conduit for Persian influence, non-representational form, and uh, uh, multiculturalism into English language poetry and culture. So, with that, um, and those are my kids, uh, you know, an excuse for again for more, more family photographs. Uh, um, part two a wall taken for a bridge. And uh, slide out of this. <coughs> So um, although I, I'm going to stay with medieval Muslim art and culture um, this time late in the era of the Abbasid Caliphate, I'd like to show shift the focus from uh, Persian art to poetry, juxtaposing uh, our 20th century Irish poet whose Persian influences have passed largely uh, unacknowledged with a thirteenth century Persian poet, Ms. Hoki uh, a version of what he might looked like, uh, whose accessibility in the West may sometimes be exaggerated. Despite my general preference for wall, for bridges over walls, there are risks to mistaking a wall for a bridge, to thinking we're crossing over, but may still be stuck on the same side. Me, or as he's known in Persian, is a best-selling poet, of course, sometimes thought to be the best-selling poet in the English language. Much better selling, in fact, than W. B. Yeats, a fellow mystic with Neoplatonist leanings. Whereas Yeats was amazed when a volume of his poetry sold 2,000 copies, by far this one, uh, by far his biggest sale. Coleman Barks has sold 2 million copies of his roommate translations or to be more precise after I bought this copy of Marathon 2001, um, Romney's poetry would seem to be the perfect example of world literature understood in David Demersch's terms as writing that gains in translation. In this case, it gains in market share and readers 800 years after Romney's birth. But can Romney's work help us think critically about this model while granting its usefulness and foregrounding how texts circulate transnational? But suppressed when we overestimate such gains. So detective work uh, turned up some material indications in my university library of what we mean gains in translation. Someone's drawn a box and ink around these lines. This is how I would die into the love I have for you, as pieces of cloud dissolve in sunlight. The facing page. Marx's translated excerpts continue on the theme of love, understood in secular rather than in sacred terms, of course. And someone has pressed a flower to leave its impression on the page near the lines. Love is the mother, we are her children. In another poem, we read um, statements like these. um, and It's purveying wise statements and memorable figure of language. These are the kinds of lines that circulate, of course, through greeting cards, email, signature lines, t-shirts, Popular songs in Ayurveda, and other media, in accord with the epideictic or the truth-telling strand that Jonathan colors recently reaffirmed in and lyric. And so, doing Rumi's popular translators often, of course, de Islamize him. And the scholar Henry Schimmel's verb, combing out his Muslim-specific content, such as terms like Allah and who is. I avoid. Oh, sorry, I avoid God words of barks and books and vows because they seem to take away the freshness of experience. He's hardly a little, of course, in this regard. Uh, Lawrence Venuti writes, translations inevitably perform a work of domestication. And so Venuti objects to translations seen as um, suppressing the linguistic or cultural difference of the foreign text and wholly assimilating it to dominant values in the target language culture. Similarly, Guy Spivak criticizes the translation of third world texts into a sort of with it translation ease that seems fully accessible, warning of a species of neo colonialist construction. This game in translation would seem to require significant losses. Under such asymmetries of power, Barks' de Islamized the risk being colonized remain. Whereas Barks's conventional free verse translations have had little of an impact on the development of poetry in English, Nearly a century earlier, a friend and collaborator of Yeats, Ezra Pound, recreated the Chinese poet by Bai's uh, work in crystalline, image-studded lyrics that broke open new possibilities for the development of Imagism and Modernism. Figures. A translator of poetry in Chinese, Anglo-Saxon, Occitan, French, Italian, Latin, and other languages, Pound exemplifies how generative the labor of translation can be, of course, for poets. Even after decades of translation theory, which I've been immersed in over the last year or so, I still think, um, after all that we've seen over the last several decades, it's still worth remembering his distinctions between aspects of poetry that are easily translated and those that are not. As he says here, that part of your poetry which strikes upon the imaginative eye of the reader will lose nothing by translation into a foreign tongue that which appeals to the ear, can reach only those who take it in the original. In his famous tripartite division, phanopeia, he makes up these uh, terms, uh, can be translated almost or wholly intact, Uh, that visual dimension. Melopoeia, in which words are charged in meaningful ways, can be appreciated in an unknown foreign language, but with small exceptions, he says, it is practically impossible to transfer or translate in one language to another. Similarly, logo third term, or wordplay on connotations and associations, he says, does not translate. Now, translations by Pound and Barks convey, of course, then, the poet's visual images, metaphors, narrative, tonal shifts, meaning, parables, and themes. But some aspects of the original the most skillful translators, even scholars. Who are true to the religious context of Burmese poetry, such as Jatiyadwajadee, can only hint at Burmese logopoeia or melopia, the latter including varieties of pachins uh, and other kinds of laughs in perso Arabic poetics. Take the facing page bilingual, um, sorry, uh, say nothing um, poems eight two thousand eight poems ably translated by uh, Iraq um, Anvar and Twitty, which includes one of the first classical poems I fell in love with when learning to read Persian poetry in my twenties. Uh, a ghazal on the theme, a uh, Sufi theme, classical, uh, classic uh, Sufi theme of dissolution or Fanon from the Divan Ishamsi You can hear in the opening matva uh, or form uh, seven couplets. How richly patterned and used to recursive is the purring of me's eleven syllable hamsticks and Hafif meter, including the repetitions and alliterations I've uh, color coded here, I think you can see, uh, with apologies to Umi who says he's birang here, literally without color. Um, uh, but he says va, uh, Oh, how nameless, how light I am, when will I see myself as I really am? While well, the Rumi scholarship offers excellent insight into poetry's thematic, logistic, and theological dimensions, it owes much less attention to Rumi's unique poetic sound, the subject of only a few pages, for example, in Franklin Lewis's and, and Schimmel's important magisterial tones. But given how lure how a lyric says, what it says, is often at least as important as what it says. The sonic texture is paramount to the distinctive poetry of a poem like this. Take its repetition of a handful of vowel sounds and a pattern that partly um, <coughs> continues across the opening uh, hemistech, which I attempt to do with um, visually in a, in a transliteration. I won't try to sound that out for you. Uh, To some extent, these vowel repetitions shouldn't be surprising, uh, since modern Persian has, according to um, contrastive phonological analysis, six vowel sounds, unlike the unusually large number in English, often said to be between 15 and 22, depending on whether it includes, say, Australian diphthongs in the numbers. Rumi's poem intensifies the vowel repetitions in Persian to set up a resonant echo and variation across D- MM as Amin Banani ben- ben- puts it, Rumi displays the strong vowel music of the Persian language. And as Christoph Virgo remarks, Rumi's poetry is pervaded with internal rhyme, more so than Persian poetry in general. Like other poets who stitch their verbal patterning to the sonic structure of the language in which they write, Rumi creates a sound texture that's unique to Farsi and irreproducible in English assonance, sonic repetition come more easily in Persian and seem less contrived since the language is, after all, built around three different uh, types of syllables, um, as, as you see uh, here, uh, whereas English has about um, 17. Uh, this is you know, why, for example, traffic becomes in Persian, uh, or steam becomes a ski, because you don't have those uh, particular consonant vowel. Um, um, or double consonant, vowel consonant patterns. Um, so listen to the uh, be, let's see, couplet uh, about the, uh, another one from the same poem, about the key, again, the key term phanon, in which the word's openal, uh, terminal open vowel echoes, almost enacting a phanon, like, dissolution, and the swirling cadences and the paradoxical wordplay, and turn the line on paw. Or foot, or leg. Again, please excuse the, my, my rusty uh, and inadequate Persian. But, uh, um, so something like um, annihilated. I'm foot free, leg free, like the moon. Look, look at me racing, a foot free, foot free runner. Up and gather from the translation the word paw, and uh, there's no Persian, uh, you know, Persian sort leg and foot, and my, my kids find enormous hilarity in that. They keep saying, well, if you go to the doctor, you need to have your just your foot removed, not your whole leg, what do you do? You know, and, and i to there are ways of handling that. Anyway, so but like other translators, I've tried to venture here a sonic stand-in, with alliteration, for the original irre- irreproducible scenario. Twitty writes in introducing uh, in her and Anvar's translation. Listening to Anvar's recital of Rudin's remind her that as translators, we're entering the realm of impossibility, the richness of sounds woven from a language that repeats its sounds and words with infinite subtle variations and glories in that. English This doesn't bend that way. It does not possess these beautifully detachable prefixes and suffixes. Those rounded, open sounds that permit each word to spill over into the next, interweaving an endless repetition. The laws and regularities of English are immediately different, no matter how or how far they're stretched. So, for me, sonically resonant as it would seem to corroborate Pound's assertion of the untranslatability of logopia. The Connotative wordplay of logopia Perhaps akin to Halum in personal Arabic poetics, also infuses this uh, Azal and many others like it. So again, it's largely unrecreatable in English. So switching to an edition in which the Persian is more accurate, let's look at one last bait from this song, this uh, poem, maybe the hardest in this Azal to render in English, which plays on aim a loan word from Arabic that should qualify for a truly globalized dictionary of untranslatables, unlike, you know, In Persian, it means I, same, spring, source, the best part of anything, essence, and as an adjectival nominative, ayam, the visible, obvious, manifest. Uh, so note here the unlikenesses of two excellent translations. And Barron Twitties reads, I said, my soul, you're the light of my eyes. Where I am, he said, no need for eyes. Bruce's, Franklin Bruce's reads, I said, friend, you're just like me. He said, how can you speak of likeness to the obviousness I am? Are these even recognizable as translations of the same text? In the first hemistic, aim means eyes, but also my likeness, source, or essence, that is soul, you were my eyes, but also you were the same as me, but you were my essence, or source. The second hemistic playfully counters the meaning of the first in asking, um, what would eyes be in this visibility where I am, uh, uh, this visibility everywhere, I am, that manifests me. Or, um, again, uh, crude renditions I've tried, what's a hidden essence? Aim when the essence that I am hides in plain sight I am. So it's the paradoxical wordplay that's frequent uh, in the um, and that virtually dissolves in explanation. So many different connotations, prance in what Pound calls logopoeia, dance of the intellect among words. Rubies were more easily translated than many poets, because of the homey soulfulness of these reflections, it harder as well because of the symphonic layering, the wordplay, the s- um, sonic textures, and semantic content. Although for some years I've been tracing anglophone poetry's triangle and transnationalism, lyric poetry, at least of this kind, to the extent that it's embedded in the language of its articulation, may be in fact less mobile, at least in some of its dimensions, than emojis, pop songs, novels, or Visual aesthetic forms such as those we track from Iran to Byzantium uh, to Yeats' poems. So, having drawn attention to um, what's lost in their translation, even in a case like me, where so much is gained, in my third section I turn and them to Azal by one these modern heirs because it instances how, even with these losses, the bridge of translation. And provide visually important glimpses into certain aspects of the poetic, social, and historical imagination in other languages. Also, partly in response to Persian bazaars, Goethe, an early proponent of Reptitatur, wrote the translation, even when techniques like monorhyme, uh, which he thought was not really suited to, to German, may not be suited to the target language, gave us access, he said, to the historical, fabulous, and ethical elements, the opinions, and modes of thought of another culture or time. So the contemporary Iranian poet might not seem promising, since the excellent English translation of her lyrics by and concludes with a rigorous 44-page afterward that explains, ironically, all of the poems lose in translation, as they say. Original music and rhythms and geometry, generic extension and innovation, and vazal, elusiveness and intertextual friction, crunchiness or granularity of texture, shifting registers of diction, um, syntactic manipulations, revisions of Iranian specific symbolism, in short, the linguistic, musical, literary, cultural, social, and historical badness of any poem. So let's laugh for you in a second Such candor about translations, inescapable losses and mutilations, as they call it, paradoxically may provide the best foundation for the. For, uh, for valorizing the work of translation, but it eliminates the specificities of a writer's poetics and the resources of both the source and target languages. So is Beh Bahani's poem about the world, the world is shaped like a sphere, or does that mean shape class, an example of world literature? What's the ratio of losses to gains here? We're casting the poem in English. Three verbs, Iranian and left aside refrain, rhyme, couplet structure, and internal china. But perhaps because Behbahani's melope is more austere than the Chinese, her English azal seems more adequate, suffused with her wit, vivid imagery, defiant boldness of address, and ironic terms of flaw. Published in 1995, but written in 1981, when revolutionary Iran's hardening resistance to West uh, was resulting in the execution of thousands of leftists, including the beloved first cousin of mine, Prashal whose mother and siblings and family I mean, I'm visiting here in the Stanford area for the last couple of days. The poem allegorizes the violence that can come of simplistic East West dichotomies, like those I began with in whether emanating from East or West. As Farzameh Nirani writes, who was disillusioned by the revolution she initially supported it and was horrified by the reign of terror, had always resisted binary modes of thinking. Addressing the listener as a collaborator, the speaker of this poem literally deconstructs the Khazal, first part. Uh, in, in its first part, the artificial directions and meanings we impose on the globe. A sphere has no left or right. Like a toy, it can be made to turn one way or another. Um, so, our agreement is called the East, though we could push it west with the east. Like uh, who writes, I am neither of the East nor of the West, uh, but uh, from no place, Lama Khan. The poem builds on the Quranic aversion to divisions of East and West, Surah 2.115, and warnings against exclusive adherence to East or West, Surah 2.177. Yet within this probably Muslim context, one of the words Bi'fahami uses for globe is the emphatically Greek term atlas uh, Geography from the ancient god Atlas in the science of geography. Implicitly, those in Iran and elsewhere who harshly divide East from West ironically rely on a Western paradigm to do so. In this poem about binary division that itself divides in half, the world is seen as a corpse that is being devoured. The world, Jahan, yes, that's me, divided by a line, also fate is a dead body, or cut in two, on which the vulture and the are feasting. In a culture built around uh, rituals, of hospitality, and cuisine, as Professor Murthy mentioned, a particular partial of the cuisine part because my mother published the first cookbook in English, uh, a Persian cookbook in English. Um, the Shia practice, of course, uh, uh, also of also ritually uh, washing, purifying the dead body of multiple evolutions is very much part of the culture as well. This spectacle of predatory feasting um, uh, Corpse is all the more repulsive. Although some culturally specific resonances that are sort of hard to convey in translation, much else lives in the Iranian's condition. As I hope I've indicated, Yahvani's dual vision of the globe as free spinning sphere or as split molding corpse. Her literalizing the idea of the division of the world as destruction, her grotesque images of hyena, a vulture, that flies, gleefully saving themselves on carrying her taunting of the adversary for complicity in murder and in corpse celebration, her tonal shift from collaborative engagement to defiance, from playfully toiling with the world as directionless glow to fiercely witnessing the uh, world's demise as carrying. These are aspects of the poem, of, the, of this world poem, are as vivid in English translation as in Persian. Such examples should prompt us, I think, um, to uh, have some caution about recent polemical arguments against world literature predicated on the assumption of uh, untranslatability, as it's kind of after its term. That said, um, because of the language specificity of much lyric poetry, its translation is uniquely challenging to the world literature as gained in translation model. In developing, uh, um, position than either the untranslatability thesis or the gains in translation model, I think it's worth consulting not only Pound, but also Roman Jakobson. He refused what he called the dogma of untranslatability, arguing that many different kinds of messages can be recorded from one language to another. But he also set poetry apart by virtue of how in it Conemic similarities, such as punning, among other verbal equations, is sensed as a semantic relationship, to the extent that poetry, by definition, is untranslatable, and only creative transposition is possible. Or is this idea exclusively Western? Consider, for example, the more than millennium before Pound or Jakobson, the uh, 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 critic, <coughs> in the middle of says, poetry cannot be translated and does not render itself to transmission. Translation can never really succeed, writes Damarache, if a work's meaning is taken to reside essentially in the local verbal texture of its original phrasing. Thus, necessarily, um, that, that is, this definition of world literature necessarily excluding uh, works such as um, the means that, that we've been looking at, in which that local verbal texture is crucial. Unless we cast the model of world literature lyric poems that intensifies the language's sonic and connotative properties, impeding their recreability in another language, will have difficulty finding a home here. You might have thought the challenges of translating poetry um, would be obvious, but at an MLA Roundtable on Translation uh, this last January, I was astonished when two speakers dismissed the idea that it would be harder to translate a lyric poem than an instruction manual. This is in response to an annoying question for me. Uh, there's also a recent trend in translation studies to the effect of you know, dismissing Frost's uh, termist that poetry is what's lost in translation. It's said to reflect an essentialist definition of poetry. The poems as richly embroidered in musical, elusive, and connotative threads as Bernese or Yeats's, Yeats who was said by James Natale, uh, to be entirely untranslatable, call into question claims that poetry is not a special case of language uh, admittedly, Frost's aphorism, like any aphorism, uh, simplifies as we've seen some aspects of poetry translate. This is all the truer of poems and long form varieties such, of course, as epic or narrative verse, And even some lyrics, uh, such as, you know, and you know, Justin Quinn's estimation, uh, writes poems as translatable as science. Um, it also depends, of course, on what languages are involved translate from say Persian into uh, uh, Persian into English um, uh, is quite different from translating Persian into a, a closely related language like Urdu. Sometimes art and poetry that seem like walls turn out to be bridges. Sometimes they seem like bridges but turn out to be walls. But even wall-like impediments, such as the untranslatable elements of poetry, can turn into a bridge if instead of overlooking them, we examine the cultural specificities that render visible on either side. After all, we can only become aware of the special qualities of one language when we cross over into another. Grappling with linguistic and cultural difference through the act of translation crystallizes the affordances of um, the, the languages we speak. By virtue of heightening, and stretching, the and sonnets, syntactic, rhetorical, elusive, and other features of the languages, poetry can provide a powerful lens for cross-cultural and intercultural understanding. Now, to the extent that it privileges translatability, the emergent field of world literature, dominated by the novel um, and translated in English, and often faulted for its Eurocentrism, will continue to marginalize the literatures in which the lyric poetry has for centuries been the major genre of literary expression, as in many parts uh, of Asia. And in a recent statement uh, on their poetry, I, I cite a few entries that I want to uh, bring up for you here from uh, the Princeton Encyclopedia of, uh, sorry, of Poetry and Poetics, uh, the editor uh, 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 in chief, of uh, which um, is, of course, here uh, with us at Stanford and here with us tonight. Uh, Poetry permeates all aspects of Vietnamese life, uh, for example, in this first quote, um, states one entry, and indeed the composition of the lyrics, uh, as we know, was compulsory on civil, subsur- civil My own version of such a civil service exam for a global age. I, I recently had my students on a round the world voyage on a semester at sea write poems in forms such as the Vietnamese on route to Vietnam, as well as Azales in India, Haiku and Tanka in Japan, and so forth. While it's difficult to reproduce some features of a language in another, such fixed forms are indeed at least partly transmissible. Um, and in that, they're more akin to visual forms I explored at the beginning of this talk with Yeats. Another entry in the Princeton Encyclopedia reminds us uh, that poetry has long prospered um, in um, as the. Uh, this is the last quote here of the three. As the predominant mode of literary expression among those who speak and write in Arabic. And a show uh, taped in Abu Dhabi since 2006, uh, makes this point uh, quite powerfully, Millions Poet, which has had an audience of up to 70 million people. Um, poet participants recite lyrics they've written to compete for a prize worth more than a $1 million. Um, and, uh, I, I urge you to go to YouTube if you haven't looked at this before. It's remarkable to see the vote is for the individual contestants. So much for the idea, sometimes for the US Academy, that lyric poetry is dead or is an illusory construct of the West. You won't be surprised that I'm working, up to, uh, working my way up to a last entry about Persian poetry uh, in the Princeton Encyclopedia, which has had, again, a remarkably tiny role in the study thus far of world literature. As the most prestigious form of verbal discourse and artistic expression in Persian culture, poetry is traditionally the privileged form a verbal discourse and a preferred vehicle for the transmission of wisdom and knowledge. So, when I lived uh, for a year in Iran as a schoolboy, I was astonished when uh, even relatives of very humble means that could finish one another's quotations of medieval lyric poems. Even with TV and electronic media, the tradition still lives. On a Persian poetry TV game show, you can watch a first grader named Raha uh, performing brilliantly as a contestant in a popular game, uh, in which a player takes the last letter, one form of it, the last letter of a previous person's quotation and begins another quotation with the same letter. In another such game, she instantly responds to the prompts of prison words for flame, poppy, wind, but with a classic couplet uh, that includes them. A um, call چون سر کار تو با
1: کودک به تا پس زبان کودکی باید گوشاد به ده عزیزم در دات ازم که مشکین سیح چون نافه بسیر خون دلم در جگل افتاد خواهی چنده خواهی یه باری هم اون می در دات ازم آفیقی مشکین سیح نافه خونه چون نافه بسیر خون در جگل افتاد هنه شن چون they assemble a box and
0: then hope can hang on the hook.
1: Open box, We can't even get hands on the
0: machine. (Laughter) So many.
1: the bag, so که همون من که بفتی درسته؟ بسیار خوبی منچنکلی؟ میپسید؟
0: واجه بردوستان درسته فهمید شقایق بعد
1: شمالی یک افقاون به سمن کاخد چشم نرگس به شقایق نگران کاخد شد بسیار خوب بسیار کنید باز بعد شما یک لفظ باز سوا، موش، قشن کاخد شد I'll oh, busy, oh, busy. Bajiba, nastaran. Pale nastaran. Bap. Pale, look, there's in Bap I'm not sure if you're going to check any. I'm not sure if you're going to check any. I'm not sure if you're going to check any. i I'm going to check any. I'm not sure going to not going to going
0: to you not to It's hard act to follow, but i am just get, I conclude here quickly. With return one last time to an image of the world's most famous wall that's also a bridge, a reminder of how global cultures have been connected and divided in myriad ways for thousands of years. Um, and I'd like to return one also one last time. Um, um, to Edward Said whose pronouncement no less uh, seems to me no less relevant than it was twenty years ago, and deserves to be reiterated, says, "The fact is, we are mixed in with one another in ways that most national systems of education have not dreamed of. To match knowledge and arts and sciences with this integrated reality is, I believe." the intellectual and cultural challenge in the moment. So world literature may have a part to play in meeting that challenge, provided it's grounded in language-sensitive, comparative poetics. The world of world literature needs to be large enough to encompass and render visible both the translatables and untranslatables of lyric poetry. And humanistic study needs to be more attentive to these west crossings and blockages of migrant aesthetic forms. Whether the flows of culture are smooth or bumpy, easier or difficult, full or partially impeded, the transnational humanities can help remind us that for all the difficulties of engaging one another across cultural and linguistic lines, we're more intricately interconnected, even in our differences, than the wall centuries would have us believe. Because poetry's ear is pressed close against the hum of the languages that make us fully human. It may have a role to play in both calibrating and crossing our division.